The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome to the Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for the ride over the next uh, little bit less than an hour now. It's uh, John Scholes hosting and my good pal Martin Willems is here. Always courtesy of Sam Firu to Mark and LLP. Reach out to Martin anytime. Chances are you're going to, after listening to this show, some things may come to mind. Or maybe you purposely tuned into the show to get some information as it uh, pertains to your particular predicament when it comes to long-term disability, dealing with that insurance company, etc., etc. It could be a matter of appeals, all that, all that stuff we talk about on a weekly basis. But reach out to uh, Martin anytime. He's got a great team with him ready to answer your calls and guide you and educate you. one 855 821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca through email. And uh, we got a lot of those coming through on the show today. Martin, they've been stacking up in the old inbox, so we'll get to those in just a bit. But I want to talk about, uh, especially now, it's, it's, it's due. We've, we've had emails about this. We've had phone calls about this as well. But we haven't spent any dedicated time, really, a great length of time on long COVID. So let's get to some of these questions that, uh, that we've kind of culminated over the last few weeks. Um, diving right into it, pal. First one is now, I guess I should say now, about time. Is long COVID now recognized as a disability? What do you think? You know, that's a good question. I suppose there are two ways to look at this. The first one is, in general terms, can long COVID be disabling? And the the response to that is yes, with benefit now of COVID happening, I suppose, when it did start late 2019, 2020 was the peak. We're now in 2023. People still have long COVID, still have symptoms of it. So is it recognized as a disability? Um, in the general sense, I think it is recognized as something that it can be disabling. As far as I understand, um, the World Health Organization has a definition for it, and it is something that occurs in individuals with a history of having um, been infected with long COVID and that lasts for an ongoing period of time, more than three months or so. So it is recognized as an a condition. If we're speaking about it in the second front, which is under the terms of a policy. Remember policies, when you have a disability policy, the issue is not so much what the diagnosis is. Of course, that's right. important, but it is more so what is the functional impairment? What are your functional restrictions and limitations? So the easiest way of looking at this is can long COVID be disabling under the terms of a long-term disability policy? And the question, most definitely, yes, it can. Of course, everybody's symptoms may be different. Uh, the restrictions and limitations may be different. You may have somebody who is very young and is pr- profoundly impaired, and you have, may have somebody who is older and may not be as impaired. The question is, are they disabled within the meaning of the policy? Remember what we always say, the policy is a contract. And the definition for total disability under a contract is due to an illness or a condition or an injury you must show that you cannot perform the essential duties of your occupation so just listening to that definition due to an illness or a condition long COVID is a condition that is irrefutable that is a condition it may be deemed to be a sickness as well the question becomes is it disabling and it's an individual assessment but we know from the history now over the past three years that for some people it is extremely disabling and if you do have this condition and if your doctor supports that you cannot work 
don't be scared about submitting a claim that your claim may be denied because speak about what happens if there is a denial but the, the main thing for anybody listening to this and even if you have a different condition it is is the condition itself disabling do you have restrictions and limitations that would prevent you from working regardless of what the condition itself is but yes long COVID definitely is recognized as a disability in the everyday sense of the word but also in the policies depending on the severity is there, I know this might be a bit of a stretch, but is there a test I can get or someone can get to show they're disabled because of the long COVID? You know, I get asked this question quite often, and I was looking at a, a document prepared for the Ontario College of Family Physicians, and one of them is, how do I diagnose long COVID? And immediately it is said, there is no diagnostic test for long COVID. They look at the, have you had COVID before? Right, and then what happened beyond it? But there's no. It's not like you have a broken bone and you see it on an MRI or a CT scan, or you may have multiple sclerosis, MS in short, and you can see the various lesions on the person's brain or on their spine. This is not the same thing. So there is no formal test that you can use to identify what the condition is. They're going to be looking at your history and what led you to become or led you to be in the state that you are in now. But they definitely is if a doctor says and they've done the proper evaluation with it that you have long COVID I don't think there really is a position on the side of the insurance company to say well we disagree with this um, they may disagree whether you're disabled but uh, giving a diagnosis I don't think you can really go against that once the doctor has given it considering that the doctor has made an informed assessment based on the history that led to that diagnosis and again, just to reiterate, anytime you want to reach out to Martin, either during the show or afterwards, it's a, it's a phone call away. Really, it's simple. Always free for you to do so. one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca. That would be the uh, email address. We're talking about long COVID on this show and kind of spending a few minutes on it. You know, the insurer is suggesting, uh, we've had this question, I have a mental health illness, uh, illness Martin versus long COVID, and they're saying I'm not being properly treated for my condition. Why would they say that? This I can understand when you are the person submitting the claim and the insurance company comes to you and says, well, we really think that you have a mental health illness. We don't think you have long COVID or we think that your disabling condition is a mental health illness and you're not taking medications for like antidepressants or other medications. You're not under counseling. I can see how offended a person may be when they hear that. Um, not that there is anything wrong with uh, not that there should be a concern with having any of those conditions. But the point is, if you come to the insurer and your doctor has given you a diagnosis and the insurance company then turns around and they may see that you have some anxiety because you're not improving. You may have some anxiety because you are bed bound that they then turn it around and say, oh, no, 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 we think that this is a mental health illness. Therefore, you should be receiving counseling. You should be receiving these medications. And under the terms of the policy, Remember, we speak about this often. The policy is a contract, and the contract may provide that you have to be under the appropriate care of a physician and also receive appropriate treatment for the condition, which means that you have to take positive steps to improve. Now, if the insurance company is looking at this and say, well, we think it's not long COVID, we think it's a mental health illness, where you and your doctor may strongly disagree, they may use that to say, well, because you're not being properly treated, we are now going to deny your claim. 
because we say it's a mental health illness when your doctor says it isn't. So there are various reasons, I suppose, why they would take that position. They may find some entries in the clinical records, like I've explained before, where there may be some notes of anxiety, but the anxiety is situational. It's related to the diagnosis of long COVID and the issues that you have with that. Add to that that when there is a diagnosis of long COVID, there are various symptoms and it differs from person to person but some of the common ones include coughing shortness of breath difficulty breathing um you know extends fatigue difficulty with cognitive issues like thinking and focusing and concentrating and some people may have depression so there is an overlap often between symptoms so one of the questions that has been asked is how can we tell the difference between functional impairment from long COVID and from mental health illness because there often is an overlap so it's not an easy thing to respond to having said that I would always say follow your doctor's treatment advice your doctor is the person who knows you if you see your doctor regularly the doctor will be in an informed position to provide an assessment and to recommend appropriate treatment. I don't think it is the place for an insurance company to come into that picture and say, well, yes, we've never met you, we've never seen you, we've never had any of our doctors even speak to you, but we are now going to tell you what we think is wrong with you and what we think you should be doing in terms of your condition. Obviously, nothing is black and white. There may be some gray there. But in this instance, when long COVID has been diagnosed, I strongly don't feel that the person should be pushed into taking medications for a mental health illness if there is no such diagnosis. So the long answer to this is, well, that was a long answer. The short answer to this is follow your doctor's advice. And if they do deny on that basis, again, we'll speak about what happens afterwards. Again, talking about uh, long COVID questions that have come in over the last uh, little while. Uh, the fourth one is this, really, Martin. What evidence can I submit to that insurance company in support of my claim of the disability due to long COVID? That's what I'm focusing on here. This is a big one because yeah. the insurance companies always look at what evidence is there in support of the claim to show that you have restrictions and limitations that lead to functional impairment that would prevent you from working. Now, as you said before, there is no objective test. There's no MRI or CT scan that's going to show that you have long COVID and that it is disabling. So what you want to do is when you submit your claim, as with everything, it is crucial that you see your doctor on a regular basis and have your doctor diagnose you, obviously, and then provide the rationale as to why you are disabled. It's not enough to say, for example, when somebody has depression, to say the person has depression, therefore they cannot work. You have to provide the rationale for it. What is the basis? What are the restrictions and limitations? So the doctor can then address the history, the times that you have been seen by the doctor, what, what all the complaints were, what the restrictions and limitations are, be it that you have profound fatigue, you have cognitive impairment, you have body pain, you have very low energy. Detail all of those and then have the doctor uh, submit it in writing and if you've seen other specialists have them comment on it as well because right. that initial application is crucial to detail what the restrictions and limitations are because the better evidence you submit hopefully your claim will be approved of course the insurance company might turn around and say well we have no objective evidence but the objective evidence you know there is no MRI, there is no CT scan, so they have to accept it because ultimately in these policies, most of them do not provide as a requirement that a person must have objective evidence. 
Again, if there's a denial, we'll speak about what happens afterwards. A couple more of those questions. We're going to focus again on the long COVID topic until we get into our emails uh, just after the break. So stick around for that. In the meantime, yeah, reaching out to Martin, really simple. As I mentioned, phone number always first, one 821 5900 email use that too which we're going to get into as i mentioned help at disabilityrights.ca and we'll continue with more of the disability law show it's coming right up don't go anywhere you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment all right we're back disability law show thanks for sticking around through the break any questions you have for uh, this show or future shows you can always uh jettison those over to us uh, by email is a good uh, a good start help at disabilityrights.ca uh fifth question i guess five fifth of six uh martin is this is long covid and chronic fatigue syndrome the same as i hear chronic fatigue cases often get denied by insurers as well because again this is one of those things that not necessarily comes up on an mri or an x-ray what do you think this is a good question and you know i can speak about this for hours and hours because when chronic fatigue syndrome became a much bigger issue over the years it took a long time and it is still controversial but it has taken a long time to get to the point where we are now another i suppose i don't want to equate the two necessarily but another word for it is myalgic encephalitis and if you look at the medical history of a person some of them may have been extremely active then they may have had some form of an infection and beyond that became profoundly disabled these conditions are often referred to as invisible conditions or subjective conditions which means then that the insurance company will say well we don't have the objective evidence everything that you are saying is based on your self-report but we know that there is such a condition as myalgic encephalitis. Now, they look at the pattern of symptoms and the symptoms are quite often the same. Like I was saying earlier on, when you submit a claim, you want to submit to the insurance company using the, uh, your doctor um, to detail what your restrictions and limitations are, in other words, your symptoms. With chronic fatigue, again, it's not something that you're going to see on an MRI or a CT scan, but it can be extremely disabling. It used to be so controversial that some doctors even didn't recognize it. We've come a very long way. I know a lot of research is being done in in these conditions, and I suppose long COVID is where some of these conditions, like chronic fatigue, was years ago, because it is new, and people don't quite understand it. Although I think it has been given a lot more attention because of how... Oh, so profound this um, this pandemic was. So when we look at cases, be it due to long COVID or be it due to chronic fatigue syndrome, the symptoms often overlap. And again, it would be the person has, obviously you hear it in the name, significant fatigue. They have brain fog. That's something that you hear all the time. People have difficulty thinking, they have difficulty concentrating, they have difficulty with focus. Um, I have had I've represented, and I know uh, members of our team also would have done this, um, lots of people with chronic fatigue syndrome cases um, or myalgic dysphamilitis, where it's remarkable to see that somebody would have been a long-distance athlete. Like, they would be extremely active. They would have been snowboarding in the winter, doing other sports in the summer, and they would have been 
you know, very, very successful in their careers. I, I can remember a few. Somebody may have gone overseas, come back with some form of a bug, and then just never recovered. And their energy levels completely plummeted. And that's sometimes the same thing as you see with COVID, long COVID. Again, if I look at that document I was referring earlier on, the, the impression is that both of these conditions um, are considered to be as a result of post-viral infections conditions triggered by infections. So there's also an expectation that at some point people will improve and we want to be optimistic and say yes, we hope that that will happen. But insurance companies, in my experience, when we're dealing with long COVID, they may, if they do approve a claim, they may pay it for a period of time, but afterwards they may say, okay, well now we're starting to think that this is not long COVID, you should have recovered by now, and they may be looking at that mental health component again. So it is a very, very difficult thing for people to navigate, especially if you don't know how to submit the claim, what evidence you need to submit. And we've had these discussions with respect to chronic fatigue so many times in the past, because those conditions have been in place, like you were saying earlier on, long COVID is fairly new. Those conditions have been in place for many years. And we generally try, when we get involved in cases, we generally try to get the best evidence that we can to support the person's condition. And that may include having to send the person who is making a claim, who has been denied and we're representing them, to a specialist. And there are very specialists throughout the country who have the experience, who have assessed people with be it long COVID or chronic fatigue syndrome, because they know what to look for, they know what the presentation is like, and they know what the restrictions and limitations are growing industry i would imagine doctors and specialists who can uh, treat long covid and recognize it anyway um i mean the, the final question for all this after you've after you've given such a good explanation over the last 20 minutes uh, martin this is what can i do if my long covid disability claim is denied which it probably will be you know at one time or another what do you do yeah at some point it may happen right and, and what, yeah. what we always say is you need to know what your options are because it's not just i have this condition and I'm struggling to get better, and it is a very tough road, considering that we deal, we deal, we're living in a very, very overburdened medical system. So people are struggling to get proper treatment. Now they're not working. They're not getting money because they may now be denied. None of these things bode well for them getting better with respect to this condition. They want to focus on their health. They want to focus on getting the proper treatment and at least have somebody else deal with the insurance company because that's just an added stressor, which also doesn't bode well for you getting better. So if the claim is denied, I'd suggest reach out to a lawyer who handles disability claims, which is what we do. And as we always say, we handle cases throughout the country other than in Quebec and the territories. Um, but reach out. We offer free consultations and we can review with you your medical history, the policy, the denial letter and what your options are. And I always say this. Having had that discussion, at least it may not fix things for you immediately, but you will feel better because you will know what your options are. And you can choose which one to do. Now, there's the appeal process, and we know what we think about that. But there's also legal claims, depending on your circumstances, which when we get involved, as I said earlier, we take over all communications. You don't deal with the insurance company any longer. And our focus is to help you get the best evidence that we can to support your claim. And again, if that means having to try and get you assessed by a specialist, 
that is what would need to happen and that is what we will do because doctors in the system that I say is already very overburdened also struggle to you know they, they have so many patients that they have to see they're busy now they yeah, have to do the yeah. paperwork they've been doing the paperwork and the insurance company didn't accept it now the claims denied the doctors frustrated they don't have the time or the energy to deal with this it's something that is an ongoing problem and I can just imagine how difficult it must be for people who are making these claims who are denied and then getting the not knowing what evidence to submit because I hear that that all the time what do they want from me I've submitted the doctor's notes I've submitted the attending physician statement I've explained why it is that I cannot work yet yeah. they're denying me I don't know what to do that's where we come in because we can discuss with you what you can do and if we are retained and we pursue a legal claim we try and help you along getting the best evidence and having you seen possibly by a specialist as well Let's get to a uh, first email of the show. Anytime you want to send one along, it might make it to a future show. It'll get answered regardless, but uh, it's going to be help at disabilityrights.ca. Here's the uh, first one for uh, for today. He says, hey, Martin, I'm on LTD and have been referred to a psychiatrist by my doctor. And the wait time is one to two months. In this period, I continue to get medical treatment by my doctor. The insurance company insists on me to go to their psychiatrist, saying the wait time for one to two months is too long. If I did not follow, they will cut me off my benefits. What are my options? Should I see the psychiatrist or wait in the queue for, for the psychiatrist my doctor? My doctor refers me to. I'm 32 and uh, I'm non-union for whatever that's worth. What do you think, Martin? Okay, so good question. Back to basics. The policy itself provides certain rights and obligations. At your end, you have an obligation to see the doctor regularly and to follow through with appropriate treatment. Clearly we are speaking about a mental health condition here because the doctor has referred this person to a psychiatrist. I'm very surprised actually to hear that the wait time is one to two months. In my experience, uh, dealing with people who, constantly, who phone us all the time, and they're on a wait list to see a psychiatrist, it's anywhere from three to nine months, if not longer. So for an insurance company to say that's too long, I find that very surprising because it, it really isn't, but in, in the context of what we're discussing. Going back to your obligations, you have to be properly treated. So you've done all the right things thus far because you're seeing your doctor and your doctor has now put you on a wait list to see a psychiatrist, and hopefully that will be done soon. The insurance company at their end also have certain rights under the terms of the policy and one of those rights would be that the insurance company may have you assessed by somebody who they choose um, and that would be a psychiatrist so we refer to these as independent medical examinations now that can be controversial in itself but put that aside the insurance company and it depends on the language of the policy and you may want to have the insurance company refer you to the language in the policy that allows them to do this but if the policy does allow the insurance company to have you assessed by one of its chosen experts if you refuse to do that you may be looking at a denial and there it may be a difficult one because they would say you are breaching your obligations under the policy of course your position would be well the insurance company's obligations to pay you benefits in the face of evidence supporting that you cannot work and i assume that what has happened here is that you have given that evidence so Again, the short answer to this is you may have to see them, 
but you want to, the, the doctor that the insurance company wants to see you to send you to and just be clear about this that doctor is not going to treat you that doctor is simply going to assess you whereas if you are seeing the psychiatrist that your doctor is referring to that doctor will be assessing you and will be treating you as well so that you definitely have to do. Stay on that wait list and get in to see the doctor as soon as possible. But if the insurance company is pushing you to see their own psychiatrist, have them show you where in the policy it says that you have to attend. And if it does say that, you likely will have to go. All circles back to the policy. By the way, you can give Martin a call anytime and uh, look at that uh, that policy as well. Maybe get a little uh, little clarity on that sucker. We'll go to a quick break here, guys. Get back to more of your emails. In the meantime, phone number to reach out to Martin and team. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address. And by the way, you want to ask questions another way on your smartphone or your laptop, desktop, tablet, whatever. My disabilityquestions.com. That's cool because you can just leave your question there, and it will get answered again. Mydisabilityquestions.com. But we'll take a short break. Back with your emails as we continue here with the Disability Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You betcha. Back to the Disability Law Show. The main guy is Martin Willems. He's got all the knowledge and answers. You just need to reach out, ask the questions. Don't uh, lurk in the background and get frustrated by your insurance company or your adjuster. If you don't know what they're talking about, maybe it seems overwhelming, just make the phone call, one 821 5900 to reach Martin and crew. And the email, help at disabilityrights.ca. That's where we're going back to. Next email is this one. Martin says, guys, uh, on LTD for fibromyalgia and chronic pain, they want me to go for a functional test for two days. Am I obligated to go? Anxiety is high and feeling really stressed. Any suggestions? You know what we just discussed before we had the break with the other question, speaking about do you have to attend assessments that the insurance company wants to send you to? Same response to some degree, and I'll add a few more uh, comments. You want to know if the policy, and they basically all do, but let's just not generalize. Look at the policy language. Is there an obligation on you to attend examinations that the insurance company wants to send you to. Comments that are, because generally they all do say that, I think, but have them point you to that. Then, is it a reasonable thing to do? Because we're speaking about fibromyalgia and chronic pain, similar to what we discussed with long COVID and uh, myalgic encephalitis or chronic fatigue. These two, fibromyalgia and chronic pain, often are also invisible conditions or deemed to be subjective conditions. In other words, that you say these are the things that you experience, but they cannot necessarily see it on objective imaging like MRIs or CT scans. So insurance companies often do this, where they want you to then have you assessed by an expert who they say would be an expert and in this case we're speaking about what is called a functional test and when it says two days i know what this is this is a functional capacity evaluation and it is done generally sometimes by a kinesiologist other times by an occupational therapist now i know that i'm not very popular when i'm going to say what i say now um i i'm not a big fan of these um, because I feel strongly that they cannot necessarily test for fatigue, pain, 
things like that. Sometimes I would say, okay, well, we're going to measure your heart rate to see if you are experiencing, because your heart rate may increase if you experience pain, things like that. But the other problem that I have with these things is you may attend on one day. Like we know, some people have good days and bad days. Yep. You attend, you're expected to do your best. So this functional capacity evaluation will be you put through various tests, things that simulate a work environment and work duties. So they will have you sit in a chair and use a keyboard and see how long you're able to sit. Are you moving around? Are you squeaking? Are you complaining? Are you getting tired? Are you demonstrably looking in pain? Um, and you're putting yourself through this so you're doing your best to do this all the tasks do the assessment because that's expected of you then you go home so while you were doing this you were maybe able to do these things but you know you're going to pay for it afterwards and often very often there is no follow-up done by the person who did the test to see how are you doing did you experience a flare-up of your symptoms because it is a very very limited snapshot of your capacity on that day and the fact that you may have been able to do some of these tests on that day may not be reflective of whether you can do it on an ongoing basis because I've seen many cases where people do live with chronic pain or fibromyalgia and they attend one of these things and then they suffer a flare-up or a relapse or an exacerbation that may last for weeks but the assessor who did that test is not aware of that. They're not going to comment on that. They're simply going to say, we saw this person being able to do these things on this date. Therefore, we think that they are capable of going back to work. And I don't feel that that is reflective of the person's capacity. So any suggestions that I have, if you see, if you do attend this, make sure number one that you speak to your doctor about it and if your doctor has any concerns have your doctor put those in writing because you do not want to suffer an exacerbation i have done that in cases where i've represented people for example with chronic fatigue where they wanted or myalgic encephalitis where they wanted a person to attend these and the doctor commented that they were so concerned that if the person were to be put through this battery of tests that they would suffer a significant exacerbation so they didn't go there because the insurance company did not want to expose themselves to forcing the person to attend an, uh, an examination which would ultimately worsen their condition. So if you want to have a chat with your doctor, that's a good idea. Is it appropriate for you to attend? Are there any concerns with you attending? And if there are concerns, put them in writing. Should there be any limits with respect to this assessment? The second thing is, if you do attend and if you do experience an exacerbation, make sure that you report those to your doctor immediately. I may even say to you, make sure that you make an appointment with your doctor for the day or the f days that follow after that assessment, because you do want a paper trail. If there is an exacerbation, that it is reflected in the clinical records that you did have an experienced an exacerbation to the extent that yes you may have been able to do it on that day to perform those duties or those tests but what was the consequence to you because the insurance companies often use these things to deny cases and my concern is again that there was no follow-up 
Now, if they are listening to me, I would say, if you want to have people do this, make sure that the assessor follows up with the person who attends the test, because otherwise, my position on this, it is not an accurate reflection of what that person's capacity is. And that is crucial here, right? You have to prove that you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation or any other occupation, depending on where you are in the policy. But it doesn't mean that you have to, at the insurance company's end, just because they're able to do simulate a test on one day that it means that they have an ongoing capacity to to do durable work so that they're no longer disabled so again in my mind these things have limited value but as I say I'm not very popular when I make those statements but I strongly believe that and we are uh, glad you stand behind it because I think most people listening, Martin, would uh, would agree with that for sure. We got a few more emails to get through. We got to take a small break before we carry on with that. In the meantime, that number, use it if you want to have a uh, more of a uh, private chat on your own with whatever matter uh, you're dealing with. Could be you, could be a colleague, family member, for sure. You want to spend some time and have a uh, private chat with uh, with Martin in that regard. One eight five five eight two one. 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca anytime you want to uh, go there as well send an email we'll get to more of those after a short break right here on the disability law show hang in you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment disability law show that is the title of it every week martin willems is the lawyer of san firu to mark an llp reach out to martin anytime and uh, have a chat help at disabilityrights.ca that's the email address that we use weekly you can use it every day of course one 821 5900 if you want to skip over that and go right for the uh, the phone number one 821 5900 next email pal goes like this says uh, martin uh, how about this my company is giving me a severance package while i'm on ltd which means you guessed it they want to fire me I've been with them for 21 years. I understand I still keep my LTD benefits. However, will my insurance company reduce or take payment for the severance I'm going to get? This one's been listening to the show before. (laughs) That's a good question. And yes, I think that's the true statement. So two things to be said. As an aside note, if your company is terminating you, remember that we have employment lawyers working with us as well. So reach out and maybe have a discussion with one of them to make sure that whatever you're being offered is appropriate for your circumstances. Going back to the question regarding the LTD benefits, yes, on the end of the insurance company, whether you still are employed or not, that should not impact your ongoing entitlement. The assessment simply is... Are you disabled from performing the duties of your own occupation or any occupation depending on where you are in the policy? Will the severance itself affect the payment or the amount of payment? Go back to what I said before. We're going to be looking at the policy. There are things called offsets, which we've discussed many times before on the show. Some policies may provide that severance or salary continuance form either what is called direct offsets or indirect offsets. Because the policies are contracts, my position would be if severance or salary continuance is not detailed as an offset in the policy itself, 
be it under the direct offset, which means they can directly deduct the dollar by dollar, or indirect offsets, which means that there's a different formula that's applied. If it's not detailed as an offset, my position is that then you cannot deduct it on the part of the insurance company. And for the most part, they would agree with that. So we would want to look at what does the policy provide under the terms of offsets, and if severance or salary continuance is included, then yes, it likely will be reduced, depending on how much money they pay you and for how what the period is. So, for example, if they say we're going to pay you three months of severance for the next three months, your LTD benefit may be affected because of what they have paid you under the severance or, um, term package, I suppose. But if it's not detailed as an offset, my position is that they should not deduct it. And again, another email coming up here. You want to join in and contribute to the show anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Guys, I have uh, have an LTD monthly split between my disability carrier and CPP, and my CPP monthly amount increases at the beginning of every year. I've been wondering if my disability carrier's monthly portion should also be increasing at the beginning of every year. As it has never been increased since I started my STD change to LTD, that was November 2005, so no increase since then. Martin, what do you think? Okay, well, first thing, it's impressive that you, they're still paying you. Yeah, seriously. Um, secondly, <laughs> because we don't often see that, yeah. but the question with respect to an increase. So what this person is referring to is called a cost of living allowance. Some policies, I would call them the more Cadillac policies, would have certain provisions that others do not, certain benefits. Now. If it's an individual policy versus a group policy, let's speak about a group policy first. Group policies, you get what you get. The employer negotiated something with the insurance company, and those are the benefits that you get under the group policy. Some group policies will provide for what is called a cost of living allowance, which means exactly what this person is asking about. Every year, the benefit amount should increase based on the cost of living allowance benefit that was purchased. And it may be that it is tied to what is called the the consumer price index or a maximum percentage. So if you have a cost of living allowance benefit in your group policy, your benefit should increase every year. So if that is the case that this is a group policy, you may want to just try and get a copy of the policy and review whether it is allowing for a cost of living allowance. The fact that they haven't done this since 2005 tells me, I think, that there likely isn't a cost of living allowance, but you do want to make sure by reviewing the policy. If it is an individual policy, you likely will have the policy. And in that case, you will know whether you purchased. So, so if you if you have an individual policy or if you're planning to buy an individual policy from an insurance company, there are various things that you could purchase in addition to the policy itself. Those are called riders. You yeah. can buy an own occupation rider, which means the definition never changes to that of any occupation. You can buy a shorter period of time, which would be the elimination period, so you get benefits sooner once you become disabled. And you can purchase a cost of living allowance rider, cola. which means then the COLA, exactly. The COLA that you could purchase would allow you to receive an increased benefit every year based on the consumer price index. So short answer, review the policy to see whether you have a cost of living allowance benefit. Can you, Martin, can you generally pay for these uh, uh, extra riders through a group policy at work or is this only with an individual policy? You know, I have seen instances where you would have a big employer and they would yep. offer to the employee um, 
a few options so you may be class a b c or d and you would have to make that decision when you start with the employer and they say well which option do you choose and some options may allow you that you may have the cadillac option and the very basic option and some of them i suppose will allow you to choose a cost of living allowance but i would say in general that is not the case in general it is you are qualified or classified under a certain group in the policy and that group gets what was negotiated with the insurance company so again nothing's black or white but for the vast majority i would say people cannot negotiate that under a group policy they get what they get And with that, guys, we're uh, we're just about done. Appreciate all the emails, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You want to reach out now that we're done, you can do so. Um, and, you know, maybe your email, if it's cool with you, will appear on a future show. If you've got a great question, we always uh, get great questions on the show, so we thank you for that in advance. And that email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. Again, help at disabilityrights.ca. The website you can also use to ask questions, and it's nice because it's got a searchable database, which means your uh, question, you type in a few key uh, keywords. It'll show the emails that are very similar, if not exactly like the one you've asked. Could be an older email. Save you some time writing it. Just read the answer. If not, leave yours there. That is mydisabilityquestions.com. And finally, the phone number. You want to skip all that and go right to a phone call with Martin or a member of his crew. 1-855-821-5900. And we'll catch you next weekend right here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.